Do you have one of those super tight kitchens at home where there's no space to do anything? I sure do. Here's a couple of ways to solve that problem from the website twistedsifter.com. First, if your pot and pan lids all clatter to the floor every time you open a cupboard, as mine do, try mounting a couple of short towel racks on the inside door of your pots and pans cabinet. You can slide the lids right in and they won't fall out. And then if you're having trouble finding space to cut on your counter, just open a drawer and place your cutting board on top. Voila, double-decker counter space. We have a lot of great food hacks on today's episode, starting with a maple syrup tasting and technique discussion with frequent guest and host of Garden Fork TV, Eric Gunnar Rochow. After that, we send Kevin off to Murray's Cheese to learn the secrets of making great sandwiches, grilled cheese, mac and cheese, as well as how to choose cheese for your next dinner party. Also on this episode, tech editor Alex George gives us the rundown on South by Southwest, and one of our art directors tests something called a squeeze weight, which I guess is the opposite of the shake weight? Get your snacks ready, y'all. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler, and you're listening to the most useful podcast ever. So Peter had to run off to get his haircut because he's a fancy boy. But the rest of us are still here. Eric Gunnar Rachow is still here and brought us maple syrup. And we replaced Peter with Kevin because Kevin loves maple syrup. Because I love maple syrup. (laughs) He was like, oh, my God, please. Is it time? Yeah. When do we get to have it? So, okay, tell me about this maple syrup. This is from your upstate house. This is from my backyard. You can buy an evaporator that's $1,000. I built one out of a filing cabinet and two steam table trays. So it was basically $40 worth of stuff. And I boil maple syrup. Of course, there's Garden Fork videos about that. But this is from February and March of this year. And this is what's called the dark amber it's from the later part of the season, so it has a higher mineral content. Wait, is, mm. so is, is this grade B? Is that what this yep. is? I've heard that this is like a secret among people who live in Vermont and upstate New York is grade B is actually better than grade A. I actually toast this. There's a temperature that you have to bring the sap to to become syrup, which is 217 and a half degrees at my elevation. And I always let it go above that because it caramelizes it a little bit more. So take a sniff. Oh, my God. Oh. It's like the best whiskey note, like in yeah. the forest in the winter. I want to drink this whole thing. We should say we all have shot, shot glasses, glasses of, of like amazing amber, like gold right now. Yeah, they're holding them up to the microphone. You can, <laughs> holding them so you can see. Can you hear it? <laughs> can, you hear the... can you see through so the So what do we do? We just taste this? Yeah, take a sip. Okay. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so good. It tastes like a campfire feels in your heart. Mm-hmm. That's what I'm going to say about wow, it. Wow, that makes it all worth it. Just there, yeah. <laughs> and oh my God. you're in the middle of Manhattan in a skyscraper. That's true. Yeah. No, yeah. My kingdom for a pancake right now. Yeah. <laughs> I actually had waffles this morning with maple syrup, and it wasn't this good. Uh, yeah, I doubt it would be. How much maple syrup do you make a year? I end up making about four gallons. And that's from how many trees? About 30 trees. It depends on the year. You need warm, cold, warm, cold. The tree will start pumping sap from its tree roots up the tree to the leaves. If you don't have the right mix of weather, the sap will run short or it won't run at all. Depends on the rain, how much snow you have. Does it taste different too? Will you get like more bitter sap or? Oh yeah, you can get bad sap. If you leave in the collection barrel, it has a sugar content already, about one or two percent. And so it can start to ferment and it gets kind of milky and it tastes like bad watered down milk. Oh, weird. When you make maple syrup, it's 40 gallons of sap makes one gallon of syrup. So you had a lot of sap. Yeah. If I have four gallons, it is uh, 160 gallons. I had some sap go bad because I can only boil it on the weekends. And during the week, I had it stored up there. I had it packed in snow, but we had a warm spell. And the snow around my barrels melted and the sap started to go bad. Oh. So, but you can buy tapping kits on Amazon and you could, with a propane burner, you can boil down. You might make only a quart, but it's totally DIY. Go to the dollar store and buy the widest salad bowl, like a stainless steel salad bowl you can. Put it on a turkey deep fryer. 
Don't use the turkey deep fryer pot because you want maximum surface area because mm. you're boiling water off and bring it up to seven and a half degrees Fahrenheit above your local boiling point. And mine is 210 degrees at 1,200 feet. And you will go through two or three those cans of propane, you know, the big 20-pounder propanes. But you can do it. It just has to be a sugar maple. It can't be a Norway maple. It could be a red maple as well. So Okay. What happens if it's a Norway maple? The sugar content is incredibly low, and it usually doesn't taste very good. Okay. <laughs> so identify your sugar maples now in the fall, and then mark them, and then you can tap them in February. Oh. Between the honeybees and the maple syrup, I've become so attuned to the weather and the trees and the soil. It's pretty cool. Is tapping pretty simple? Yeah, you have a cordless drill with, I think it's a 516 drill bit, and you only want to go in an inch and a half. So you just put some tape on your drill bit. And I use what are called tree saver taps, which are much more friendlier to the bark. You can't over tap the tree. I'm very conservative with the tapping. If it's less than 12 inches in diameter, I won't tap it. Some people put four taps in a tree. I won't do that. Well, should we try the honey? Yeah, yeah. Honey, it's depending on where you are and what nectar sources you have. The best honey I ever had, I bought from a little shop on a mountain in Greece where I did my semester abroad. And it was amazing. And I think, I don't know what kind of flowers they have there or if I just hadn't had that kind of flower flavor before, but it was really good. There's actually a beekeeping shop in downtown Sacramento, which is where I'm from. And they have honey that you can try. They have the label for what type of plant the pollen came from and it's cool to go through and look at what the plants are and then taste the honey and see the differences okay here we go okay they're tasting they're tasting they're tasting spoons are in the mouths thinking oh man that's amazing really floral yeah and that's new york city honey that tastes like i'm actively like eating a flower yeah I was going to say with the maple syrup, it was like eating like a demerara sugar cube and then licking tree bark. Mm-hmm. This is like <laughs> It's like metaphor hour here on the most yeah. podcast ever. Wow, this is really tasty. So do you sell this to actual consumers or no? No, I just give it to people I want to be on their podcast. Mm-hmm. If you want to taste this, you have to have a podcast. I'm sorry to tell you that. But you could make your own. It's best to take a class. On our podcast, we talk about beekeeping and stuff like that as well. People will call in with questions. And beekeeping is much more frustrating than making maple syrup. If you're trying to figure out which one to do, start with maple syrup if you're in the northern climes. It's harder to keep bees in different areas of the country. So find your local beekeeping group and they should more than likely offer classes or a mentorship. If you go at your own, you'll probably kill your bees. My mom wanted to keep bees and I was like, I don't think you want those buzzing around the backyard in large numbers. You can keep them in the backyard. You need about 15 feet around because in the middle of the summer, they whip out of the hive and then they basically navigate by landmarks. They figure out where they are and then they shoot up and fly away. And as long as you don't stand right in front of the hive, you will not be stung because they only sting to defend the hive. So if you're opening the hive, a lot of them don't like that. Well, thank you so much. And everybody check out Eric's YouTube channel. This is so good. Channel. Thank you. Our guest right now is Elizabeth Chubbuck, who's Senior Vice President of Marketing and Sales. And we're at Murray's Cheese Global Headquarters. If Cheese had a corporate office, this would be the corporate office of yeah. Cheese. So what all happens here? So we age cheeses from start to finish here. We basically like take the cheese that is green and mm. put it in the caves in a particular set of like humidity, temperature, wind, and air control and let the rinds develop. Okay, so that varies for every cheese. Is that different or is it like there's one cave that has as many kinds of cheese? In an ideal world, each cheese that is aged in a cave would have its own specific cave to age in. So one thing I definitely want to talk about is like different ways of classifying cheeses. It's like if you're going to make a cheese platter, like what are the categories you should be thinking about? If you ask like a cheesemonger, we typically think about it in terms of styles. 
So okay. what it looks like, the texture it is, the way the cheese is made, how much moisture is left in the curd, how acidic it is, etc. So like if we talked about it from like styles and categories, you would have fresh cheeses. So fresh cheeses don't have a rind on the outside of them. They're not aged. They're meant to be eaten within like relative proximity to where they're made and within a few days after production. Okay. Things like fresh mozzarella, fresh ricotta, like fresh goat cheese. Flavors are usually like milky and fresh, not a ton of depth to them typically. And then from there you would go into bloomy cheeses. So brie being the most like commonly known bloomy cheese out there, but bloomy cheeses also encompass like triple creme cheeses. So things like Briat Savarin or Delice de Bourgogne or a cheese called Explorateur. So these are typically cow's milk cheeses that are enriched with cream, but like bloomy cheeses being a broader category, brie, camembert, triple creme cheeses, they all have this like white downy rind on the outside that's formed by yeasts and molds. Okay. So the white is mold. Yeah. The white is mold. Yeah. Delicious edible mold. Very good. Not bad for you. Okay. And then from there, you might move on to like maybe a washed rind cheese. So washed rinds are like Taleggio or a Poise, things that have like sort of orangey, pinky, tacky, sticky looking rinds. They tend to be really pungent. They tend to smell badly. The texture is <laughs> anything from like spoonable to doughy or like pudgy, almost like Play-Doh-y, malleable kind of textures. From there, you might move into what we call like tomes. Tomes are like semi-firm cheeses that have a rind that looks sort of like earth or bark on the outside of them. Tome de Savoie is like a very classic French version of this. And then there's a variety of different like in Italy, they would call them tomas. Tomas or tomes are these sort of semi-firm cheeses, what we would refer to as table cheeses in Europe. All these classifications are different than I expected. So what is washed rind, by the way? Because I like to eat the rind. If, if it's edible, I assume some aren't, but yeah. some are. And how do you even know when? What's the rind story? So all rinds are edible with the exception of plastic, wax, and cloth. But the rind of the cheese oftentimes has the most intense flavor. So I always say the rind sort of is very evocative of the place where the cheese is aged. And the aromas that it gives off are not always aromas that the human brain interprets as edible, right? Mm -hmm. So it smells like wet concrete or it smells like damp earth. So there are these smells that don't fit within the spectrum of food flavors. And so when we get in front of these rinds and we smell them, we think, oh God, that can't be edible. So it's really a matter of personal preference, but I think you should always try. Yeah. So you said if it's plastic, cloth, or wax, right. you don't eat it. Okay, so what are the other rinds made of that I've been eating? Most of them are made of yeasts and bacteria that just kind of populate on the outside of the cheese during the aging process. Cheese rinds are delicious and add like depth of flavor and nuances and are evocative of the places where the cheeses are aged. And from my perspective, give it a smell, test the texture of it. If it's not right. really hard and if it doesn't feel like it's going to scrape the roof of your mouth as you take a bite, then definitely try it. Yeah. Definitely try it because it's a part of the cheese. Yeah. Okay. So we did that deep dive, but let's take a step back. So like if you're going to a dinner party and you've been like tasked with a cheese plate, but you don't know what you're doing, like five cheeses is a good cheese plate. How do you pick five that's going to like cover bases for people and let them try things that are interesting? What's your advice to this person? The first thing is talk to your cheesemonger. Tell them who your crowd is. Tell them what you're looking to purchase and ask questions. Cheesemongers behind the counter have so much knowledge and want to talk to customers about (laughs) it. But then after that, I would say start with something hard that's going to be a crowd 
pleaser. So an aged Gouda, like Romano is one that we sell. It kind of tastes like butterscotch and Werther's original. It's got this like, yeah, it's like super yummy. Can't go wrong. Something soft and buttery. So if we like go back to that bloomy rinded category again, mm-hmm. I would say a triple creme is it's always like a, a home run. So you, if you go with an aged Gouda and a triple creme, you know you're going to please the soft cheese lovers and the hard cheese lovers and everyone in between. So those are like two good anchors. And then from okay. there, I would say get something that's a little bit weird or just like slightly unexpected. Maybe it's just something that's a wash rind and a little bit funkier, like a Telegio, or if you have like a really adventurous crowd and a poisse, which kind of smells like dry aged meat and French onion soup with like bitter cocoa all melded into one flavor profile and it's spoonable or like a thistle rennet cheese which is something from Portugal that's pretty unique the flavor profile is oftentimes like somewhere between kombucha and sour apple Jolly Rancher really yeah they're like weird and wonderful flavors then you just sort of fill in the gap so you have a hard you have a soft you have something that's like a little bit off the beaten path a little bit surprising and then you fill it in so if you know that your crowd is not all that adventurous there's maybe half of them are going to want to go to something they know then get a really good aged cheddar like a cloth bound cheddar that actually has cloth on the outside they rub it with lard and age it the flavors in those are going to be similar to like a really good aged cheddar but more nuanced and complex So it's like familiar enough that you'll get them in, but then different enough that they'll be intrigued. And then I would go with something, probably if I were doing five cheeses, I would bring a blue to the table. And as far as blues go, they run the full spectrum. You have to know your audience, right? Pick the one for the people you've got coming over. Five cheese board, you want to hit various textures. You want to get something a little bit off the beaten path. And you want to get all three milk types. So cow, sheep, and goat. So I would probably round out that selection with maybe a French goat cheese, like a chevreau, something small. Yeah. Really beautiful to look at. Speaking of those three animals, Are there characteristics of each of those three that are pretty much distinctive and you're going to find in any cheese from a cow's milk or from a sheep's milk or a goat's milk? Almost any milk type can be used to make every style of cheese. So you could take sheep's milk and make a really funky, pungent, washed rind cheese that has nothing to do with the kind of buttery, nutty, firm manchego that everyone loves. So in that sense... I would say going with a milk type can lead you astray or maybe lead you to new discoveries rather. But it's more the style of the cheese that has the commonality than the milk type itself. Okay. However, oftentimes milk types lend themselves better to certain styles. Okay. I want to do this lightning round because Jackie, she wanted to know for several different kinds of sandwiches, what kind of cheese to use. So I'm going to tell you a sandwich. Actually, I'm going to start with not a sandwich. Mac and cheese. So by making it from scratch, I at minimum use two different cheeses. I'll use either a fontina or a raclette cheese, something that's like sort of semi-firm in texture, really smooth, that's going to melt into like silky, creamy, ooey, gooey goodness. That's the base that I use for texture and body. And then I'll use like a really nice aged block cheddar. We have an amazing just... English block cheddar that's like sweet and caramelly and bright acidity and I'll use that to kind of like pop up the flavor a little bit more. I also throw a little bit of yogurt in usually. Oh. I like a tangy kind of like tart mac and cheese. Yeah. Okay. That sounds good. What about grilled cheese sandwich? No ham on there or nothing? Just grilled cheese? I mean... 
craft singles. Okay, well, I was going to say, I, I use a fine Velveeta. Uh, yeah. I don't cook grilled cheese with that at home, but I will sometimes sneak over to the bodega around the corner from here and order one of those. If I'm not going for craft singles, I would say I really just like good block cheddar, mm-hmm. yellow and white cheddar together. Not too complicated, easy, delicious. Yeah. Okay, what about a burger? I like Gruyere on a burger. Okay. Salty and oniony. Um, roast beef. I mean, Swiss is the answer, but you could also go with an English cloth-bound cheddar. Might sometimes have these horseradishy, fresh-cut grass notes. I would go with that. Okay. What about tuna salad? Tuna salad, I usually would do a sharp cheddar and a tomato. Okay. I'm also like a tuna melt kind of gal. So I feel like a tuna salad sandwich is either a tuna salad sandwich or it's a tuna melt, and the two are totally different. Yeah. Cheddar was like the thing I grew up eating on tuna melts, and I still like it. Okay, it's the last one. This is really revealing how you answer this. Philly cheesesteak. Whiz. Okay. <laughs> well, thank you. This is great. I think people are going to be set straight now. <laughs> awesome. It's time again for your favorite segment, Bad Facts. Bad Facts. Bad Facts. Facts Wait, about we... batteries. <laughs> like, Thanks we... for the clarification. There's a lot of bats. It could be a lot of different things. Like? Baseball bat, flying bat. Flying bat. <laughs> there's, I'm sure there's at least one more. I know. I'm racking my brains. I feel like there are more bats. Batteries. That's what we got today. <laughs> right. Okay. Well, I had a lot of battery questions. Did you? I did. And I have some answers. Okay. But the most important question remains unanswered, and that is who takes all of the AA batteries? Actually, I think From I figured office? it out. It's us. We have a lot. Who, it's us. You know why? Because us? what takes AA batteries is our... I, I should actually explain this on this podcast. We've been having trouble with our mixer. Mm-hmm. So we bought a new mixer, and we're we're installing it and figuring it out. But in the meantime, we have been recording our entire episodes on a portable recording device. That this uses, is a great endorsement for this thing. It is. This thing is great, actually. It's tiny. It's very useful. What's it called? A Zoom? Uh, it's called a Zoom. The, yeah. there's a, it's like the H4 or something. Yeah. I think, I think their H is like it's H3, It's very useful, H2. and it's working, and it uses AA batteries. And yeah. we're already down to two-thirds from just what we've been recording in the last half hour. So well, that explains I it. grabbed a bunch from the closet and like rubber-banded them together in packs of four. Kevin. To put Kevin in a little it. kit to take so oh. that if they die, we don't have to. And the lav mics also take AA batteries. Uh. And there's four packs. They each take two. So I brought backups for those. Mystery solved. It's me. It's Kevin. Kevin's been stealing all the And that's in bad facts. And that's me. So some real bad facts. All right. So I, I did a little bit of a dive into the history of the battery. So Ooh. stay tuned. So Ben Franklin, who I feel like named everything and invented everything in America, he came really up did. with the word battery. Really? He stole it from the military because it what referred thief. to like a group of weapons functioning together like oh like a battalion or yeah something. there's your other bat for another bat hey oh. battalion coming bats. up <laughs> so he decided that he would use that to talk about a group of electrical devices functioning together so thanks ben franklin oh and the first actual electric battery was invented by alessandro volta as in volt nice and voltage and voltage yes he was in a fight with luigi galvani another Italian scientist. Uh-huh. And this Galvani dude was, maybe you guys have heard of this, he was doing experiments on frog legs. Uh-huh. Oh, I have, heard, I have of heard of this. And he basically was claiming that there was something inside the frogs, like an animal electricity, that made their legs twitch because they would contract when he hooked them up to two different kinds of metal. And Volta was like, no, 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 it's not the frogs, it's the metal. So he formed a voltaic pile, was what it ended up being called. And it was just made out of copper and zinc plates separated by paper discs soaked in brine and it would still produce a steady current no frog legs required 
So this was kind of a spite invention. Oh, batteries. 100%. I think that's all great that's amazing, scientific actually. I like inventions. That. Yeah. I hate that guy. Yeah. Batteries for all of you. Yeah. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, scientific rivalry for the ages. This is something that I find very interesting. The longest running battery is the Oxford Electric Bell, and it's been going since 1840. What? Whoa. Yeah, so over 170 years. And it's this like little experimental electric bell, and there's a teeny tiny, it's called like a dry pile battery that's running it, and there's like a clapper going back and forth hitting the bell. And it's been estimated that it's been rung 10 billion times since 1840. Why? It's still going. Did they have any theory about why that one has lasted so long? So they don't know for sure because they'd have to open it up, which would stop it, and they just want to like, let it that. run out. Yeah. Right. Why are our batteries dying so fast? Well, they think that this one only takes such a small amount of energy that it's just running down very, very slowly. That is amazing. I know. I want that thing in my phone. That's what I want. Yeah. <laughs> it's going to be really sad Come on, Apple. Ends. I know. I wonder if we take bets. <laughs> we should have an office pool on this like obscure bell that well, no there's one's a ever heard of. Bulb like that too. Have you guys heard of this? Is I really? have heard of the light bulb. Yeah, it's, it's in called the Centennial bulb. California. It's in California. Yeah. yeah, and it's been running for like a hundred years or something. There's been a few times where it went off, but not because the bulb failed. It was like there was a power outage, or I think they had to move it at one point. But it's like this closely guarded wow. extreme light bulb. Extreme light bulb. If only the extreme light bulb and the extreme battery could get together. Yeah. <laughs> Be a real party. Be a love, be a love story for the ages. <laughs> I got some more bat facts. You okay, let's. Yeah. All right. Different sizes of batteries. Oh, I, this, this is, is what, what I, I've been this really is what I want to know. Okay, okay good. Go. I'm glad. So most batteries are 1.5 volts, regardless of how big they are. But the different sizes correspond to different capacities, which is how much charge they can actually deliver. So basically, if you have more electrode material, like that's what gives you the charge. And so the bigger the battery, the more charge you can have. Wait, I'm bad at physics. Okay. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what is voltage? Voltage is the amount of power? No, voltage is the current. The current. Okay, so that's like a continuous current would be the same. Right. But you have longer of it. I think so. Okay. We're all bad at physics. Because what's the thing? It's like current is like the speed of the river and then charge is like the, the volume width. or something. That's the one. There's charge, a water analogy somewhere. There's something where it's like the two banks is something, but I find that very confusing. Yeah. And then the steamboat is what? Your phone? I don't know. <laughs> No, I've never heard say, of the steamboat. This, this one may be like a we need to go ask a physicist yeah. to come back with some real answers. Yeah. yeah. Bad facts part two. Bad facts or part, part two. Or part four, depending on how you're counting. Yeah. <laughs> and that's been bad facts. Bad facts. Bad facts. So we have Roy on today's episode because Roy has been in the back of the office just sawing things with miter saws lately, I feel like. Yeah, that's pretty much the case. Yeah, everything but cold cuts and cheese and bread. I feel like sawing a piece of bread with a miter saw would get really crummy really fast. No, I, you know what? I did not even mean that as a pun, actually. I was just thinking there'd be Sorry. crumbs everywhere. There would be, yeah. No, that's the next aspect of miter saws that needs development is they're just incredibly messy tools. Really? Even if you hook up 
dust collection. The dust collection misses a lot, and it's amazing. So what were you doing exactly with the miter saws? I'm glad you asked. (laughs) We have been looking at inexpensive miter saws. We structured this test differently. Normally, we test on mechanical specifications. That is, something that has a certain size blade or motor or some mechanical attribute, and we get everything, regardless of price, that matches those attributes. This one, we went just the opposite. We said all of these saws have to fall at or below $150. Okay, that's pretty cheap for a saw. Yeah, well, that we think is a good threshold for a beginner woodworker, maybe somebody with a young family, they've got all kinds of expenses, and a miter saw is not high on their priority list, but maybe fixing up their house is. Mm -hmm. So they want as much saw as they can get for the money. And so that was our thinking. We hope it was valid, especially for our younger readers. So we just said, regardless of the specifications, we're going to get all of these saws in. And it was a very pleasant surprise. Really? I'm glad to report. Yeah. We're spoiled here because we test all of these great power tools and a lot of them are industrial duty and professional duty and they cost hundreds of dollars in some rare cases, even thousands of dollars. Well, you can expect a lot from equipment that is that expensive. So, you know, you might say we went in, well, okay, if these things do half of what you expect, well, no. As long as they don't fall into millions of pieces and actually (laughs) saw stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. If they actually do what the manufacturer is intending for them. What we learned was that there's a lot of value in that category, for one thing, and especially this was a category or a value that we were not expecting that with some tweaks and a little bit of patience, you can dial in the accuracy of these saws to be extremely good, almost as good as professional saws. Professional saws are pretty good right out of the box. We've taken professional miter saws out and cut miters with them. It's like, wow. Wait, what is a miter? Well, a miter, normally it's considered to be a 90-degree angle divided in half. That's like the common understanding for the trim around a door or window. Let's put it that way. Those are normally 90-degree pieces of trim that are divided 45 degrees. However, a miter can be any angle divided in half, and that's what these saws will do. You can take any angle, divide it in half, and these saws will cut that, which happens if you're laying out a piece of oct trim that is around an octagon-shaped window or flooring. Let's say you're doing something fancy, or it's in an old house, and the corners are not square, and the shapes that you're working with are a little bit odd, so you have to be able to adjust that angle. So any angle divided in half, let's just say, is a miter. Now, accuracy is important there. You want that trim to fit together neatly. Well, to do that requires some fine-tuning and adjustment, and we found that, lo and behold, with a little bit of patience, you could get a very inexpensive miter saw to produce a cut that was dead-on accurate. What were a couple of things that you did if I were going to do two things to my new miter saw to make it more accurate? Well, the most common thing that you have to check the blade relative to the fence. The fence is the part of the saw that you butt the wood up to and you hold it firmly to the fence, and then you bring the saw down, and that cuts your angle. The angle between the blade and the fence is what really is establishing your angle. Now, you can adjust the saw head itself. There's a number of adjustments you can make there, but the easiest one and the fastest one to make is the fence relative to the blade. And the manufacturers provide adjustment screws for that purpose so that you can fine-tune that. And we found that with careful setup and careful tightening, the good news is you don't have to spend a lot to get 
decent cuts. Yeah. One thing that is in common with all of these saws, whether you buy one online or whether you go to the Home Depot or Lowe's and you buy a saw, all of those saws that they have there, the inexpensive saws, are great. Yeah. What you have to sort of just make up your mind about is that the blades that the saws come with are okay. They're not great. You can double the saw's performance, let's just say, in terms of cut quality and accuracy just by buying a better blade. Wow. Wow. Put a better blade on it. And by better, you mean? Higher quality. In most cases, the saws come with a fairly coarse blade because they anticipate the user doing a range of rough to semi-fine work. They're much too coarse for doing trim in most cases. You want a trim blade, not a blade that you're going to be cutting a 2 by 4 with. Better blades are flatter, they run truer, they cut cleaner, and that in itself is going to help an inexpensive miter saw do a better job. And also, don't use a $5 square to check the blade relative to the fence. So those two investments and you're good to go. Cool. What do you recommend somebody do for their first project? Well, there's lots of fun stuff you can do. Let's say you're sprucing up your bathroom and so you're painting the bathroom walls. Well, install new trim. Put new baseboard trim down. It's a good way to figure out how your miter saw works, and the results are very, very gratifying. So that's like the ideal beginner's project, I think. Cool. I wish I owned my apartment. I would try it. <laughs> <laughs> you just do it. Just take it down later. Well, check out Roy's actual miter saw test. That'll be out in our June issue. And in the meantime, happy miter sawing. So our technology editor, Alex George, just came back today from South by Southwest? Late last night, yeah. yeah. Okay. And I don't really understand South by Southwest. You've talked about it on here before, I feel like. It's like a conference, but for everything? Yeah. So it's broken up into three sections. There's like a technology section where it's mostly panel discussions from people like Melinda Gates gave a talk. The CEO of YouTube will do a panel discussion, too. Okay. And then the other sections are music, which is like a music festival, and then there's movies, too. Okay. I go out there every year for the technology section, and it's basically an excuse to see a whole bunch of really high-level people who are out there either to give talks or to you know make an appearance or something like that and get to talk to them that way. Okay. How long is the technology? Like a weekish or something? Yeah, less about that. And then okay. you can kind of stay as long as you want. And then major companies like a couple of years ago, Spotify had a concert with Run the Jewels. And so it'll be like these big corporate company, you know, trying to do something kind of cultural. Cool and weird. Yeah. And there's parts of it that are kind of insufferable. <laughs> a lot of talk about innovate and leveraging machine learning and like just a lot of, you know, those kinds of things. It's not quite as fascinating as a, t- a tech geek uh, as like consumer electronics show or something like that but it's cool you know you see a bunch of people out there it can be fun for that reason okay so what were the coolest things this year that you saw the one that I'm really angry I didn't get around to going to was, you know, the HBO show Westworld? I do. I like that show. About this theme park that's, you know, the Old West, and it has these hosts, which are these robots, basically, that look just uncannily like humans. And so what they do is, outside of Austin, they set up a recreation of it, pretty much. Like a full-size one? Of Delos, is the, I think is the name of it. Yeah. What? So it's basically the little town. They had hosts that would kind of act animatronic, kind of slightly robotic. And uh, yeah, they just basically recreate it. It's all the build-up for season two that's coming okay. out. Okay. And so that's kind of the thing you Yo, see out there. that's awesome. I want to go to that. Yeah, yeah. They should make a real one. I know. I may, I did make it out to it, but I, everybody I talked to was like, But without like, yeah, like murderous hosts that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Like. I think you, you got to get a free cowboy hat if you went out too. So oh. another reason I'm mad I didn't make it out for oh, it. Oh, you should have gone. Some I related to that. So unexpectedly, Elon Musk showed up at the conference. Oh, really? And so he came on stage and they talked 
It was about what you'd expect about kind of talking candidly about his hopes for colonizing Mars and talk about how the Earth is the cradle, but we can eventually leave the cradle and go live somewhere outside of space. So he's kind of just waxing on about stuff like that. I feel like I saw somewhere that he said that the first trips to Mars will happen soonish, right? Is yeah. that what he was saying? He was given some, yeah, some pretty lofty goals. I'm sure his PR <laughs> people were like, no, don't stop say it. That. Stop don't it, Elon. You can't do that. <laughs> but yeah, he, saw, he just kind of riffed about that stuff. It wasn't a formal announcement, but just he showed up there and yeah i guess he and his brother they both sing together so they did some performances wait out seriously by, yeah out by um forget whether it was at the westworld demo but, but yeah he came westworld demo sounds like it was really I the know. place to be yeah that was something i don't think anybody expected and yeah it's this kind of ambiguous conference where everybody you pay we get them press passes but you pay 1200 bucks for this badge is that how much it yeah, is yeah it's a lot of money wow so the idea is that you'll get access to these talks or whatever and yeah, you know, we tried to go to a couple and the lines are huge there's so many people there but the big good part is that I think they don't have a problem getting people to come out because it's Austin. Austin's a blast. And right. there's tons of cool offsite stuff going on. It seems almost like business Coachella. That's what it seems like to I me. I think that's closer <laughs> to what it is, yeah. Oh, and actually, I should mention the one other product demo that I didn't expect is, so Bose, they make those noise-canceling headphones and yeah. audio products forever. They came out with this prototype. They hired a guy six months or so ago from GE to make this prototype is these glasses. And so you put them on, and then in the earpiece, it's not, it uses stuff It's called bone induction where basically it's touching the little kind of bone outside of your ear not it doesn't actually protrude inside your ear it's just Mm -hmm. touching it nearby it sounds like just clear as day audio coming through so you can still hear everything kind of around you you can have it do noise canceling that kind of thing the major part of it was that it works with a phone to figure out your gps your location and then uses accelerometers that are inside of it to basically see where you're looking so what you do is you look up at the sky there's no like visual overlay or anything like that you look up at the sky tap the arms of the glasses twice and it'll tell you the weather and i'll explain to you what you know it's like this today I just tried a prototype walking down Rainy Street, which has all these bars and restaurants that people rent out. And you tap it and it says, Black Car is open from this time till this time. Wow. And, you know, all this kind of thing. But it was cool because the idea was augmented reality through audio as opposed to like having more stuff to In look at on screen. Yeah. So I thought that was pretty cool. So that was kind of, I think for me, that was the highlight of it. That was something I'm like, I can't wait for. You really want that. Yeah, I really want people to do cool stuff. With I mean, them. it would be cool if you could somehow, I don't know, like, combine that with Alexa or something and say something like give me directions to blah 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 and then just tap it and then it just speaks in your ear right as opposed to pulling your phone and yeah Yeah. no I think it's a really cool idea the idea that Bose is proposing is it's they'll sell it to kind of like Alexa proposing proposing Bose is proposing that they will sell it to like a bicycle helmet company or something like okay. that and so then they can put it into their helmets and have oh, it that would be like amazing that. because i will say as somebody who cycles to work fairly often well i'm lying i used to cycle <laughs> my old job i live super far from here now so i don't but i, I cycled my old job and whenever i come here i get lost because i don't do it very often and you got to mm-hmm. go up through queens and it's very complicated and i feel like i end up stopping on street corners pulling my phone out of my backpack trying right. to figure out where the heck is the road that i missed and if you could just have like turn by turn directions that like recalibrate and are like oh you need to turn left here for riding a bike that would be amazing totally yeah and you yeah. don't have uh, an earpiece shoved in your ear or a speaker on your bike that everyone has to listen to like it's just kind of your own personal experience but you still have ambient awareness that's i think it's a great idea yeah that's a really cool idea sounds fun we're glad to have you back though thanks
So we have a new guest on today's podcast who is in the office all the time. We see him, but you don't get to see him. His name is see him today. You don't get to see him now. Yeah, Uh, you get to hear him though. His name is Dwayne. He is you're an art director. Is that what you are? I am. And Dwayne is a CrossFitter. Are you a CrossFitter? I am a CrossFitter. Peter, do we call ourselves CrossFitters? I don't like to acknowledge it, but yes. Do you call yourself like a gym rat or what's? No, it seems worse. I think. On our shirt that says athlete. <laughs> yes, I am an athlete. Oh, that's way worse than CrossFitter. <laughs> is it? Yeah. It's kind of stupid, but they do call everybody athletes. And it's like, all right, you're not an athlete. Really? Is that a thing? It's a, just to yeah. like empower people. And their coaches. Uh-huh. They refer to the you as athletes. Yeah. For the CrossFit games that are happening right now. They, yeah, it's like the athlete will do this. The athlete will whatever. Oh, that and, sounds like I'm not on board. That's how yeah. I feel about No, it. it's kind of silly. And when you're working out, they call it work. Athletes doing work. Yeah. (laughs) Which I always think is kind of weird. Yeah, that's a little strange. Yeah, they have like five more minutes left of work. Ugh. Yeah, that's like the timing. So we gave Athlete Dwayne some work Athlete, to do. Athlete Dwayne <laughs> yeah. had a very particular kind of work this week. So we gave you a thing that's like what? It's like the opposite of a shake weight. It's a squeezy weight. Yeah, it really is. That's the uh, Active 5. Okay. And what does that look like? It fits in the palm of your hand and you use your own body pressure to move your hand against your body. Now that the thing is in your hand, it records your pressure. Okay. The harder you push, it's like the equivalent of a certain amount of weight yes. on it. Okay. Exactly. But you don't need weights. Yeah, you don't need weights except oh, nice. for your well, what, So you put your it in your weight. hand and then you push against it? Yes. Okay, but like in different ways? Yeah, like you use your shoulder. So if you're doing like a shoulder workout, okay, it'll actually prescribe stuff to you on your phone. Okay. Like if you're trying to build your shoulders up, here's like five shoulder exercises for you to do with it. And it's kind of cool because it makes a game out of it. Okay. Right, because you try, you have to hit something for a certain Exa- amount of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to hit like a certain thing in a certain amount of time. Okay. And um, I find it's a really good party game, actually. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Like a workout party game. Yeah, yeah. It's That'd be kind of fun. You get like better party. It's kind of rad that way. Do you try to get your measurements and beat other people, like those punching bags at, yes. the, at the arcade? Yeah. Okay. That like, actually uh, sounds kind of fun. Yeah. Like my girlfriend and I, we did a planking exercise with it. <laughs> So, at a party? No, well, just, no, well, it was a party. It was after dinner. Like my whole life is a party. That's that's what I'm saying. It was after our dinner party of two. She said she felt it when she was doing this like leg exercise. I didn't really feel it that much, but I did feel it on the planking. When you did it with a plank, how did you incorporate the little device? Where did that go in the plank? Okay, so you're in a plank position and then you have your two hands out in front of you and you have to press down as hard as you can, like pushing down on the floor while pushing the weight. Oh, both hands are on top of each other, pushing the weight, yeah. pushing the thing down. Right, okay. pushing okay. it towards the floor. Yeah, which like, you know, activates your abs even harder. And then but, it just times you. So it wouldn't be measuring your pressure because like a heavier guy would be putting more no, pressure on it. Well, not necessarily, I don't think, because, you know, I'm heavier than Tiffany and we kind of did the same amount in a weird way. Yeah. I think it's more about how much force you can like actually put on it. And I mean, you you do planks before. Like, yeah, but you you're limited push by into gravity the, for the amount of force you can put uh, on No, you're not. You're limited by your core strength, really, because it's about like stabilization. Does it know how much you weigh? You put in all your... Oh, okay. see, so yeah. then that's that what it's going to do. You put in all your information. Okay. Yeah. So it's going to like calibrate it, presumably, to how much you weigh. And then that way it can like figure out how... Yeah. Yeah. So how much does this thing cost? I think it was like 120. Okay. And there are enough exercises you could replace supposedly an entire gym. If you, you wouldn't need to go to the gym. You could do this thing at home, squeezing it, whatever position. I think you could. There are a lot of exercises on that thing. Yeah. Like, yeah, so I looked through the instructions. It was amazing. How would you do it with your legs? You'd stand on it or like what? Uh, it's the same thing, like I said, with the shoulder, except for you put it in your inner thigh area and you just like push your knee against the palm of your hand with that thing in between uh, it. Yeah. Okay. It sounds like, it's like an isometric exercise, kind yeah. of, which that's a thing. Yeah. And one, you like sit on a chair and push your foot down on it. There's a bunch of yeah, really there's a bunch of them. how you do it. I thought 
is a little bit of BS that you have to use certain chairs. You can't just use any old you chair. Use their really? four thousand dollar active <laughs> active seven chair. Yeah, no, but active, it's like oh, five. I would like to try this exercise, but like my chairs all have four legs, and this one requires three. <laughs> it's a lot of things like that. So you never were able to do a full workout because you didn't have the right chair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I just kind of hopped around to different things. Like, oh, I got to like work my chest this week. How does this work? Or, okay. Did it make you sore ever? You know, the planking actually made me sore. The, when I was doing like shoulders and other exercises, I thought it was it's actually kind of good for stretching in a weird way. That makes sense. Puts you in weird positions. Yeah. yeah. It's like all the active stretches that we do before class. To activate muscles. And yeah. Like that. It's like yeah. push against the floor, or yeah. do whatever, and it hurts and it's good and good things happen. So that sounds like a benefit of yeah. this. It also seems good for people who might get injured if they don't really know what they're doing with weights you can't pick up too much weight if there is no weight if you're just in pressing your against it yeah i've always thought that about like body weight exercises yeah it's a lot harder to really hurt the crap out of yourself right yeah yeah, yeah and you can only blame yourself if you hurt yourself because <laughs> you're you, too heavy you hurt yourself with your own strength yeah so the way we always end the segment is to ask you if you would buy this given it's 120 dollars. did you like it enough that you would buy it no. Okay. I didn't. I liked it enough that it was free. And like I said, it's a great party game. $120 is a lot for a party game. I don't know. Is it though? I mean, it keeps you entertained over and over again. It's a good like party starter. Okay. So yours was more of a social active five than a strength conditioning active it was a social, Yeah. It was a social five. Admittedly, yeah. it was more social than strength. Peter, are you going to give it a shot? I want to test it out. Yeah, I would try it out. Considering what you pay for a gym. It's true. If it replaced your gym, it wouldn't be that bad. That's our show, y'all. The most useful podcast ever is produced by the staff of Popular Mechanics and edited by Brandcasters, Inc. at www.brandcastingu.com. We'd like to thank Sarah Bentley and Andy Bowers from Panoply and Popular Mechanics Editor-in-Chief Ryan D'Agostino. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes. While you're there, leave us a comment. We'd love to know what you think. And if you want to read more about life hacks of all sorts, you should check out our website, popularmechanics.com. While you're there, you could subscribe to the print and digital edition of Popular Mechanics magazine for just $13.99 a year. I'm Jacqueline Detweiler. Thanks for listening.